to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. As we studied Revelation 21 in our last lesson, we began to see John's description of the new heaven and the new earth of the new heaven and the new earth, and of the holy city, the new Jerusalem that came down out of heaven. Not only was it a place of extraordinary beauty, but John declared that this was the very place God had prepared for his people, a place with no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away, the new has come. And best of all, as it was in Eden, it shall be the place where God himself dwells with his people. John's description continues in Revelation 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." John speaks of the river of the water of life as clear as crystal that has long been associated with God's presence. Even in the Old Testament, it mentioned this living water many times. There was a great river that watered the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Ezekiel also had a vision about a river that flowed from God's presence in the temple in Ezekiel 47, as did the writer of the Psalms, the prophet Joel, and all also the prophet Zechariah. These were the springs of living water that the angel spoke of in Revelation chapter 7, where he promised, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the water that flows from the very throne of God and of Christ, and it is the living water that he promised to give us without cost in Revelation 21 verse 6. As it was in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life is also there. I don't know if you know this, but in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. Genesis 2, 9 tells us that God made many trees to grow there that were both beautiful and good for food. However, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God forbade them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from the tree of life. It was only after Adam and Eve disobeyed God that they were exiled from God's presence and were prevented from eating from the tree of life. In fact, according to Genesis 3, 22 to 23, God expelled mankind from the garden for that very reason, so that we could not reach out our hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God never wanted us to live forever apart from him. He always desired that we be with him. The whole story of the Bible is really one of exile, an exile from God's presence because of sin. But in Christ, that exile has ended. We are brought near to the Father again, and now in the heavenly Jerusalem, we will once more have access to the tree of life. This is no ordinary tree. 
It spans both sides of the river, and although it may be difficult to imagine, we can learn from the text that it bears 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is always fruitful, and its fruit can be consumed continually. The leaves of the tree of life are used for the healing of the nations. The Greek word here for healing is therapeia, meaning for curing and healing, and it's actually the root for our English word therapy. Some theologians maintain that it would be better translated as being used for the health of the nations because it enables them to maintain the life which God has already given to them. John continues, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. The curse of which John speaks was the curse that was placed upon mankind and on all creation as well in Genesis. That curse delivered us over to a life of ongoing pain and toil and even to death itself because of our sin. But now that affliction will be no more. Reconciled to the Father because of the Lamb, we will now serve him. Can you imagine what that will be like, loving and serving God and relating to others without the continual downward pull of sin and that curse? And miraculously, John declares in verse 4 that every believer will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. God's servants will see his face. Even the Lord's greatest servant, Moses, had been denied that privilege, for no one had been able to look on God and live. And yet we will have that honor, just as Paul had promised in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, when he said, For though now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall shall know fully even as we are fully known. Marked with his name, we will finally fully belong. We will realize the completeness of our identity as children of God. As stated in the Westminster Confession, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In that place, we will worship him and the It'll be the very thing that we've always been created to do. Gone will be all darkness, for God's presence is there. And in perfect freedom, we'll have royal status as we live and reign with him. You know, people have often asked me if heaven will be boring, and not by any means. Think of the very best thing you could ever do in your life. Multiply it by a thousand times. No, 10,000 times 10,000, and then know that heaven will be a million times better than even that. What could we who have trusted in Christ possibly lack? We will be in his city. We will fellowship with him face to face. We'll finally belong. We'll walk in the light with him, and we will reign. 
The book of Revelation then comes to a close with many wonderful assurances being given in verse 6. John hears the angel speak once more, closely followed by the voice of Christ himself. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this book. The words and promises of this prophecy can be trusted because they're God's words and they're true. He is the same God who spoke to his prophets in the past and just as he wanted to reveal himself and his plan to his people then, the Lord wants his people, his servants, to know these things that must come to pass. Then Jesus speaks and he declares, Behold, I am coming soon. As God's people, we're called to be alert and ready for his return. For the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 to 38, we need to persevere so that when we've done the will of God, we'll receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. We are to continue to live by faith, remembering that the Lord takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back from their commitment to Christ. Jesus then goes on to declare the sixth blessing of Revelation, saying, Blessed is the person who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this book. Other translations say, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy written in this book. To keep or to heed what is written in this book really means that we're to pay attention to, to follow and to guard what God has said in Revelation. But the question is, how do we do that? Well, we know from what we've read in Revelation that we must be sure that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life by asking Christ to forgive us and by submitting to him as our Savior and our Lord, remembering that repentance involves a change of direction. The way that we live proves what we say we believe, and we have to live in light of what God says will or must occur. Jesus says here in verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Some translations say, Behold, I am coming suddenly. And I do think that we need to address the fact that there are skeptics who ask, Why has this Jesus of yours not returned yet? Why is he taking his time? People ridiculed Christians for believing that the Lord would return, even in John's day. In fact, Peter said to encourage the believers in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 10, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Whether those of the world believe it or not, Christ is coming quickly. If he delays, it is only out of mercy. 
He holds back so that more might be saved. And John continues in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John clearly identifies himself as being the one to whom the vision was given, and in an echo of his previous reaction in Revelation 19, he falls before the angel as if to worship, and the angel's response is the same. I am a fellow servant. Worship God. Verse 10 says, Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Many of the Old Testament prophets, like Daniel, for example, were told to seal up their scrolls for the future. But the angel tells John that the words of this prophecy are to be shared and not hidden away because the time is near. And the text concludes with a very strange passage that almost seems to say that men should remain as they are. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Perhaps this can best be interpreted as a warning that there comes a time when it is too late to change, too late to answer the call to believe. Just as it was in Noah's day when people refused the invitation to enter the ark, partying even as the door to the ark was shut, there will be those who, having made their choice, will lose the opportunity to be saved. Men often delay a decision to follow Christ because they believe they have time, but even a delayed decision is actually a decision. And delayed obedience always hardens the heart. Daniel spoke of this truth in Daniel 12:10 when he said that the wicked will continue to be wicked and the prophet Ezekiel also warned in Ezekiel 3:27 he that will hear let him hear and he that will refuse to hear let him refuse God has given each of us free will to choose him or not, but today is the day of salvation. None of us know if we even have tomorrow. If you've not yet repented of your sin and chosen to follow Christ, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Then Jesus speaks once again, saying that he's coming quickly to judge and to reward men's works. And he declares once more that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the name that uses the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet to symbolize his eternal completeness. 
You know, I like what the Jewish rabbis of John's day would say. Since God was the beginning, he received his power from no one. Since he was the middle, he shared his power with no one. And since he was the end, he never handed over his power to anyone. When God revealed himself in Revelation 21 verse 6 as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I mentioned that there was something known as the Alpha Omega principle in which all that was lost in the first three chapters of Genesis is restored in the final three chapters of Revelation. I promised then that we would take a look at what that meant more closely. So let's do that now. In Genesis, God created both heaven and earth, and in Revelation, he creates the new heaven and the new earth. In Genesis 1 verses 1 through 4, it mentions that darkness covered over the deep and that when God created light, he separated it from the darkness. But in Revelation, there is no more darkness and no more night, for heaven is lit by the radiance of God's glory. Evil and sin entered the Garden of Eden in the presence of Satan, the deceiver. But in this final paradise of revelation, Satan has been judged and no impurity will ever enter the holy city. When mankind ate of the forbidden fruit, their walk with the Lord was interrupted. Death entered the garden and mankind was cast out from God's presence, cut off from access to the tree of life. But in Revelation, death has now been defeated. Man's fellowship with God has been fully restored and we regain access to the tree of life. In those early chapters of Genesis, it seems that Satan had triumphed and gained the victory. But now in these last chapters of Revelation, we see the Lamb's complete and final victory over him. In Genesis, mankind was cursed with sorrow, pain, and toil as a result of their sin. But in Revelation, all of these things are no more, for the old order of things has passed away and the new has come. In Genesis, Adam and Eve lost their dominion over the earth. But in Revelation, we've been restored to rule. Paradise was lost, but in these last chapters, we see paradise gained. In Genesis, man was driven from God's presence, but in Revelation, we're told that we will see God's face. What a glorious day it will be. Verse 14 continues, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The seventh and final blessing of Revelation is then given here in verse 14. Those who cleanse themselves in the blood of Christ, those who wash their robes are blessed because not only will they have eternal life, but they will have the freedom of God's holy city. It is faith in Christ that brings this kind of cleansing. Nothing else will do. And our love for him is proved by our obedience to his commands. 
We saw the same picture and these same promises earlier in Revelation 7, when John described the great multitude of the tribulation saints standing before God's throne. He said that they had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every blessing of God the Father comes to us because of Christ the Son and his offer of grace. But not all people will respond to God's grace. Not all will be in that heavenly city. Look at verse 15. Outside are the dogs who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The term rendered dogs here is kuon in Greek, and in scripture it is often used as a symbol for a man of impure mind or a disrespectful man. Notice those who are separated from God don't only sin, they love to practice it. This is another description of those in verse 11, those who have chosen their path and will now be left to it. Verse 16, the Lord concludes, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus personally guarantees the truth of all that John has heard. He declares that this is his message to the churches both then and now. As he opened this book with messages to the churches, he closes it here. And then he uses two messianic names that we've seen attributed to him before. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. David is the beloved king of Israel, the one through whom Christ came. Jesus declares that he's both David's root, his origin. In other words, he is David's creator. And he is also David's offspring, his descendant. This title reveals Christ to be both fully God and fully man. It shows both his divinity as creator and his humanity as the offspring of David. And then Jesus says that he is the bright and morning star. The morning star announces that a new day is coming. It is the sign that night is passing. And in fact, the morning star shines in the darkest hours just before dawn. Jesus said in the gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And his appearance at the end of the ages when evil seems at its worst will finally and completely conquer all of the world's darkness. Verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. 
The church, Christ's people, his bride, is Jesus' earthly representative until he comes, and both the Holy Spirit and Christ's people are anxious to see Jesus return. We're also anxious that all who are thirsty accept the invitation to drink from the water of life freely, without cost or limit. All of us are Christ's missionaries pleading with the lost to be saved. Verse 18 brings a warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. A very stern warning indeed, but knowing that scribes would make copies of their work, it was not uncommon for writers at the time to close their messages by insisting on future accuracy. However, you notice that it is not to those who would write copies of the book that this closing statement is addressed. It is addressed to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, the warning is addressed to the churches to whom it was sent and to us. We cannot add to it and we cannot take away from it without great peril. We cannot make up what it does not say and we cannot take away from it the bits that we do not like. Many think these verses apply to the whole of Scripture, not just the book of Revelation, and I think that that is a valid point. We are not free to change God's word to suit ourselves. Many people especially struggle with the biblical truth that salvation is in Christ Jesus alone and that those who refuse him will not be found in heaven. But we cannot make the Scriptures say what they do not. Rather than trying to deny it or even to invent a different approach to what is there, we should pray for those we're concerned about and pray for his grace and gentleness to share truth with them, knowing that God is both kind and just and it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, a friend of mine once told me that for many years she reached out to her neighbor, sharing Christ with her at every opportunity until the neighbor finally said that she just wasn't interested in Jesus. Well, eventually the neighbor contracted emphysema and slipped into a coma as she lay close to death in the hospital. My friend went to visit her and pray with her even though she was unresponsive. She told me that she left feeling hopeless, wishing that there was something more that she could have done. She felt like a failure. Let me assure you, though we are responsible for sharing the good news with others in a loving way, we are not responsible for the way that people respond to the gospel. That is their God-given free choice, and we cannot make that choice for them. My friend's neighbor died shortly afterwards, but at the funeral, her husband told my friend that just prior to her passing, his wife had come out of the coma and opened her eyes. He said that when she did, he immediately asked her if there was anything she needed, to which she replied, I need Jesus. 
She closed her eyes and died shortly after that. I tell this story because we don't know how God will work in someone's life in those last moments. We know that the thief on the cross saw Jesus for who he is only moments before he stepped into eternity himself. Sometimes we never hear of what happens. My own father, for example, maintained that he was an atheist, and although we shared Christ with him, particularly as he lay in a coma dying, we never received an assurance that he had turned to Jesus. I do not know if my dad will be in the new Jerusalem, but I do know that I have a heavenly father who is faithful. I know that as we pray for others, he will give them every opportunity to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Better we pray and lovingly share Christ with others than try to reinvent what the scripture says. As verse 20 tells us, Jesus is coming soon and we must make the most of the opportunities we have as we join with John in saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. This is the beautiful Aramaic word Maranatha that has been the cry of the church since the day Christ ascended to heaven. Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Let us live lives worthy of the calling that we have received, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. How wonderful and how fitting that the last word of the Bible should be grace. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts through this beautiful book. And I pray that you would continue to speak to us as we meet for our final lesson next time. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.